Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I think we can all agree that one of the clear markers that a civilization is in decline, possibly irreparably so, is when biblical knowledge, ethics, principles, and morals are propagated throughout the population. Conversely, when liberal policies reign, biblical instruction is removed from society, and morals are replaced with lessels. That's when a civilization is on the verge of utopia. On today's episode, we're going to show how the careful and precise use of math can reveal something that everybody already knows. Then we're going to uncover the insidious, nefarious, dare I say the seamy underbelly of the religious right. And finally, we'll see how there was no joy or knowledge or intelligence in Viewville. So grab your graph paper, dust off your little undercover agent spy kit, and put some fresh batteries in the TV clicker, because, uh, here we go. Now look, I like math. I think you know I like math. Don't even try to say I don't like math. And let me be very clear, calculus ain't math. I don't know what it is, but it ain't math. And I like models. (laughs) I think you know I like models. Models are the best. And when you combine those and get mathematical models, (laughs) oh baby, now you're trucking right up my alley. But as I've said before, models are only as good as the data used and the modeler that does the modeling. Based on that, you get good models and bad models. Sometimes the bad models are a result of errors. Sometimes they're done on purpose. And then every once in a while, a model is created with good data, the modeler uses the data correctly, and the model is just plain stupid. Something that makes you wonder... Why in the world did they even put effort into this? I I could have told them that. File this in the (laughs) nah category from phys.org headline, Mathematical Model Offers Clear-Cut Answers to How Morals Will Change Over Time. Now, can you see where this is going? Well, stay tuned. You might actually be shocked. From the Institute for Future Studies, which sounds very sci-fi-ish, located in Stockholm, Sweden, researchers developed a mathematical model to predict changes in moral opinion. Now, remember how I said you might actually be shocked? Well, that was a lie to keep you listening longer. You won't be shocked at all. They determined that we're all going to move to a more liberal position with regard to our morals. Yay. Okay, so, wow, right? The model predicted that little... That little gem, that little hidden thing there, it's like the model's a prophet or something. (laughs) The model used continuous survey data to predict that corporal punishment of children, abortion rights, and how parental leave should work will all move in the liberal, or as I like to call it, wrong and or evil direction. The article said that, quote, results from a first test of the model using data from large opinion surveys continuously conducted in the U.S. are promising. Okay, okay, promising. I mean, you know, I'm happy their little pointless, well-duh model works, but I'd almost prefer that the model be approximately completely wrong. So they break us U.S. down in terms of these categories. So 
Corporal punishment, or whoopings, are still widely accepted in the U.S., but before too long, it'll be the shameful position to hold. Have they met the South? One of my favorite lines in the article, quote, The right to abortion is currently being threatened through a series of court cases, but though change is slow, the view of abortion as a right will eventually come to dominate. Threatened. The, uh, the right to kill a child is being threatened. Not the child. The right to kill that child. It's interesting. And as I said, uh, evil. Now, finally, they predicted that within 15 years, the majority of Americans will agree that parental leave should be an equally shared thing between parents. Okay. Study leader Pontius, I, sorry, Pontus Strimling said that the method he and mathematician Kimo Erickson and statistician Irina Fartanova with a V came up with could be used for any public opinion of morals. So it's a you know very useful, useful model here, I guess. So starting with surveys from 2018, they've predicted year-by-year changes in a number of issues up through 2030, with their first checkpoint of 2020 being, uh-huh, promising. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. He, that's Pontius, I, Pontus said, quote, Our model did considerably better than all known methods for predicting opinion change. The key is to understand the mechanisms that underlie the change. How opinions change depends on the arguments used to argue for and against a certain stance. The model gives a clear picture of what societies will look like in the near future. Okay, so that's an interesting way to phrase that, right? Opinions change based on the arguments used to argue it. Well, I, I definitely agree with that. But if opinions are moving more toward mom and dad blurring roles of nurturer and provider while letting the kids run wild, if they even decide to let the kid live in the first place, I guess that means that the messaging, the propaganda, the bullying used by the left is much more effective than that on the right. And to me, that's your bigger problem. Of course, coming out of Stockholm, this really isn't a big deal to them. It's about time the U.S. catches up. To me, ah, not so good. So let's take a look at this from the standpoint of the study. They're predicting, in their words, near-future changes. Essentially, they're looking at trends in society. I'm sure that any of us, mathematical or not, could look at the political winds, the current messaging, the current direction, and make a decent wet-finger-in-the-air prediction about the near-term future. If you take this data, throw a few curve equations on it, maybe some calculus voodoo, you could probably get a very accurate prediction in theory, but they have to keep them near term. They've basically predicted out about a decade. I do appreciate that. They're recognizing the one thing they can't predict, human nature. I guarantee as they see their continuous survey data shift, they'll find the inflection point where society has basically had enough, and then they can adjust their model to predict slower rates of change or even change in the other direction entirely. They recognize the problem with predicting human behavior. It's the human. This is why, despite what some people believe about the future of artificial intelligence and the fear that it'll take over, no amount of computing power can outthink a human. This is why human drivers will always outdrive automated driving systems. We're too unpredictable. Sometimes we make the choice that on paper seems to be the worst, and it turns out to be the best. 
Sometimes we sacrifice ourselves for the good of generations to come. A model, a computer, math, not even artificial intelligence can predict accurately what humans will do every time, as sometimes we're completely illogical, because that's the only logical choice. Furthermore, trying to look at a shift in opinion versus a shift in morals is kind of like comparing weather and climate. Opinion and behavior may shift in wild swings for a while, kind of like weather, but morals are unchangeable within some very strict boundaries, like climate. When you look at society, sure, society can choose to ignore the morals, maybe even for a long time, but given enough time, they swing back. Think of things like child labor. Think of slavery. Think of wars and the defining of war crimes. Given enough time, if God were to allow, the biblical model will come back around at least in large degree. We will, as a society, eventually have to admit to the tens and tens of millions of babies that we've slaughtered. We'll have to admit that sparing the rod does in fact spoil the child. We'll have to admit that male and female are our only gender choices, and that one is designed as a better nurturer, one is designed as a better protector and provider. As Solomon said, and as I've quoted before, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The entire universe is set up with natural frequencies, vibrations. We've all seen the opera singer break a wine glass because her voice, which is a series of vibrations, was at the correct vibration that matched the natural vibration frequency of the glass and made it vibrate out of control until the structure could no longer withstand those vibrations. All molecules vibrate. You have a natural frequency of vibration. The tides have a natural frequency coming in and going out. The planet has a natural vibration frequency. Climate has a natural frequency of warmer and cooler. The universe has a natural frequency. Solomon recognized that even the pattern of human behavior has a natural frequency. We can change these frequencies slightly by interfering with them but we can't stop them. We also know that the world is going to get worse and worse overall, as the frequency that should fully reverse is attenuated by sin. I've likened society and its path toward the point in time God is set to send a son to get all who are his as walking toward a cliff. We walk closer to the edge of the cliff, toward depravity and unabashed evil, and then we back up some, and then we walk closer, and then we back up some. But the general progress is toward destruction. Again, because of sin. At some point, God has already decided that it's enough. Now, we don't know when that point is. On a near-term basis, however, as is done in this study, there is no way to know beyond a few years out what humans will do. We've had great revivals in the past. We've had great awakenings. We've had revolutions. There is nothing saying that we don't have more of those in the future, resulting in at least a segment of the population walking nearly all the way back from that edge. We just don't know, but I believe that given enough time, we would regain a large amount, maybe not everything, but a large amount of the ground that we've lost to the liberal world, and then eventually reverse course again and start heading back toward that cliff. Now, what we do see right now, however, is exactly what this study purports to predict. Society is going more dark, or as they say, more liberal. Not only is more depravity and evil being allowed and accepted in mainstream society, but it's being pushed. 
In fact, if you hold any sort of conservative or religious stance, you are ironically being held up as the hateful evil one. As Jesus said, if they hate you, don't worry about it. They hated me first. That's, that's loosely paraphrased. So as Christians, what do we do with this? Well, first, recognize that these guys aren't breaking any new ground. Nothing to fear here. We already knew this. All they're doing is stating the obvious and getting paid to do it, which is not a bad gig if you can get it. Second, we keep fighting on earth for what's right. Now that looks different for everyone. Some may protest, some may donate, some may run for office, some may become pastors or missionaries to spread the truth, but what we must all not give up doing is fighting for what we know is right. Third, and most importantly, we must follow the commands we're given in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, and then love others as you love yourself. Next, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I mean, what good are we going to do if someone asks us a serious question about our beliefs and we stumble and stutter and give them no hope, no truth, no way out of this cyclical mess we're in? Now, in order to do this, we must be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Study your Bible. Hard to always be ready if you haven't looked over the materials. Right? Look them over closely, studiously. Lastly, we need to follow the command Jesus gave his apostles and us, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Whatever your sphere of influence is in this world, be ready, be studied up, and tell them. From our very limited vantage point, the world isn't getting any better. From a viewpoint of recorded history, we see periods of moral clarity and opposing very, very dark seasons. From a sovereign God's perspective, everything is happening as he foreordained. Don't worry about people who are predicting small temporary shifts in what is culturally acceptable. God's plan trumps their predictions. God's glory will not be diminished or attenuated in any way. As we're told over and over in the Bible, fear not. The God that created everything, that holds the entire world together, the God that laid out the laws so that math and logic work, the God that even knows when a sparrow falls and knows the number of each hair on your head, that's a God that gives us a reason for hope, confidence, and joy, despite what man predicts. Proverbs 18.17 says, The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. I challenge you to find a more applicable verse to our current media climate. There's a massive rift between the politically right and the politically left in the United States. I think the largest in at least recent history, maybe the largest since the Civil War, and, and I would even argue it's larger and more irreparable than at the time of the Civil War. Now, you may wonder how I would make that claim, seeing as that was an actual war fought between states, fought between literal brothers, fought over slavery. How could today be a larger split than even that? Well, let me briefly explain my point. In the times prior to and during the Civil War, you had individuals on both sides of the debate. There were slave owners that felt that slavery was just fine. And you had anti-slavery advocates who felt it was horrific and needed to stop. But generally, both sides had one connective tissue, strained as it may have been, the Bible. Without going into detail, the bottom line is that you had slave owners that felt that the Bible gave the okay to owning slaves. You had abolitionists that held firm to the position that slavery was in no way a Christian or biblical thing to do. 
What they could all agree on is that slavery was in the Bible, but the interpretation of what exactly it was and the application or not for the modern era was up for debate. Long story short, the pro-slavery side was wrong. Their interpretation, such as it was, was completely wrong, and their understanding of humanity was sorely lacking. The abolitionists had it right. Human slavery was not sanctioned in the Bible for humanity. Now, periods of slavery of various ethnic groups in the Bible was descriptive, not prescriptive. Just because there was slavery doesn't mean we can or should continue on with that practice. All that being said, regardless of the interpretation of slavery, Americans were largely connected through the Bible. Today, that connective tissue has been severed. I'm not a prophet. I don't know if it can ever be repaired, but if I had to guess, I'd say, taint no way. So now, rather than having interpretation differences, ideological differences, we now have a chasm between Christ and Antichrist. I'm not saying that everyone on the right is a born-again Christian. They're not. But the general morals, ethics, and beliefs largely align with the core of the moral teachings of the Bible. I'm also not saying that everyone on the left is unsaved, but I'd be willing to say most are unsaved. And at this point, if you're a liberal and claiming to be a Christian, I don't think you have a justifiable position anymore. It's time to analyze your beliefs versus your apparent politics and decide... What side of the fence do you want to stand your ground? But how have we moved so far apart into our very separate camps? Well, that's what I started with, Proverbs 18:17, at least in part. Think of it this way. Have you ever watched Judge Judy? If not, why not? I mean, it's fantastic. The best judge on TV, right? Since at least Judge Wapner. You know, Judge Wapner. Every once in a while, she'll get a case where one side or the other decides that they just can't seem to control themselves. So she sends Bird over there to usher that side out the door. As they're leaving, she makes the same comment every time. Well, that'll make this easy. When she only has to hear one side of the story, the decision is easy. Briefly tell me why you're upset. Any objections? Uh, nope, hearing none, you win. This, unfortunately, is the state of our media and of our population today. We are living in a perpetual state of confirmation bias. We decide what we believe based on a certain political ideology, then we seek out anything and everything to confirm that what we believe is, in fact, the correct belief. This goes for the lunatic left in their MSNBC and CNN, and it goes for the rabid right in their 24-7 Fox News. Rarely do we look at what the other side is saying. And no, I'm not casting stones. I often do the same thing. Case in point, I found this gem on one of the most leftiest of the leftist rags, Slate.com. Headline, How the Right is Bringing Christian Prayer Back into Public Schools. Now, that's their title now. And it's a fairly mundane title. But that's a change from when they actually published it a few days prior Unfortunately, they never changed the web address. So that still has the original title, which was, quote, How Republicans Recast Christian Indoctrination as Religious Freedom. Now that is a more accurate title. This article is simply an absolutely amazing display of lies, spin, half-truths, anger, and antichrist sentiment. And if this is what those on the left read or hear and never look at a counter-argument, it's really easy to see how this chasm has opened in this country. 
The article centers around the upcoming, very soon, case of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. The very bare bones of the case is that high school football coach, ironically named Joseph Kennedy, had a practice of kneeling midfield at the end of a game and praying, you know, like a terrorist. The district told him to stop, that it violated the school board's policy, to which I say, who cares what their policy is, and that they didn't need him violating the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. He decided that compliance to that stupidity, and I might be ad-libbing a bit here, uh, wasn't something he was going to do. So after a few more times, they placed him on administrative leave. Now, that was in 2015. He had been doing this since 2008, never asked or required anyone to join him, although students and players did of their own choice, sometimes more, sometimes less. Of course, then a few people complained. And there you go. So he sued for violation of his free speech and lost. He appealed and lost. And now it's heading to the Supreme Court. So what is this establishment clause? Well, it's a small portion of the First Amendment. The full First Amendment reads, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The Establishment Clause is the first section of this single-sentence amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And from that we get, you don't have the right to kneel on the high school football field and pray at the end of a game. I mean, perfectly clear, right? Okay, back to the Slate article. Now, this is a little bit longer of an article, so in the interest of time, I'm going to try to just hit some of the high points or low lights if you're so inclined, and we'll go from there. You can find the link in the notes and read the entire article if you so choose. It really is just an amazingly written article full of... <laughs> Nothing but anger and hatred and the same inaccurate talking points you find from sources like this. And quickly, some totally solid points they made. They say that the case was carefully engineered to return prayer to public schools. Well, he's literally suing based on the question of if a public school employee saying a brief quiet prayer by himself, but at school and visible to students is private free speech. Or would that be government speech? From what I found, he's not trying to hold church services in the school cafeteria. You know, attendance mandatory. I don't think this was a carefully engineered case to do anything. They said, quote, It marks an effort to overturn nearly 60 years of precedent protecting school children from state-sponsored religion by flipping the First Amendment on its head. Okay, I mean, drama much? First of all, slavery was a precedent. Women not being allowed to vote was a precedent. Are they really sure that they want to use precedent as an argument? <laughs> yes, they are. But only when they want to, right? And then as for flipping the First Amendment, I mean, <laughs> what? It's a case to clarify what that clause means. Now, personally, I don't think it needs any clarification. Maybe we just end public schools. We go all private. That ends this whole debate, right? Yeah, but I digress. They state that the case erases the rights of children who wish to avoid religious coercion at school, fixating instead on the right of school officials to practice their religion during the course of their formal duties. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no, it doesn't. It's not even remotely close to that. 
But as I stated at the beginning, if this was the only side of the story that you heard, uh, you'd believe them. Because it would fit with your worldview, and, and, and they wouldn't lie. They state that this case is also the product of the Republican political campaign aimed at restoring public schools' authority to indoctrinate students with Christianity. Okay, now, see, it, it doesn't do anything of the sort. I don't actually know of a Republican, a, a serious candidate, that wants to indoctrinate students with anything. Conversely, though, I'm sure Slate has no issue with indoctrinating kids with evolution and godlessness, which is also a religious belief. And then they say that the campaign is on the brink of success in the courts because proponents of school prayer have perfected a tactic that reverses the victim and offender. So they're claiming that the children are victims of religious indoctrination? I mean, this is literally the tactic of the problem with, and the only thing the left has, just raw, unbridled, dramatic emotions. There's a reason why so many, maybe the majority of men on the left, are somewhat, um, shall we say, soft. The left thrives on and requires a high level of emotion and a lower level of logic. Although the feminists would be upset by me saying this and by me talking at all since I'm a male, although I'm not a biologist, the emotional side of things is a feminine trait. Women are generally more emotional than logical, and men are generally more logical than emotional. They then jump into a story about a courthouse in Florida that was going to be named for the first black state Supreme Court justice, but at the last minute, the state Congress voted it down. They had been on board with it, both left and right, until a last-minute piece of information that this man had struck down a policy allowing student-approved prayers at a public graduation. Then the article authors go apoplectic about how he had this stellar career, and because of this one little thing, just one thing, the Republicans dismissed everything else about his life. I mean, I have one word for the authors here. I, hypocrites? I mean, that is literally one of the main tools of the left. Find a single thing from 40 years ago, and if you can't find one, just make one up. Lie like a dog if you need to, and then hammer on whoever because of that one thing. Then as if on cue, they start the embellishment and lies. They claim that Kennedy, quote, led explicitly religious prayer circles with students at the 50-yard line after games. And then they claimed, quote, when the school district discovered this conduct in 2015, which no. He'd been doing it for seven years by that time. You're telling me that not one board member went to one home game in that entire time? This happened in 2015 because a couple Kens and Karens got in their wambulance and complained. My apologies if that's your name, unless you're the epitome of a Kenner and Karen, in which case, knock it off. At one point in the article, they cite a different case and said that the Supreme Court ruled that a school district policy allowing student-led prayer at football games violated the constitutional separation of church and state. And this is where you can tell the authors, in addition to being angry anti-God leftists, are complete and total morons without rudimentary Googling skills. If they did understand how to verify their claims, they wouldn't like the results of their constitutional separation of church and state claim. See, that's not in the Constitution. Anywhere. Never has been. Maybe never will be. It's not a law, 
by any stretch of the imagination, anywhere. The claim is that this is synonymous with the Establishment Clause, and uh, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's really not. The actual story behind the separation of church and state dates back to a phrase that Thomas Jefferson said. We'll get to that here in a second. In 1802, a pastor with the Danbury Baptist Association in Danbury, Connecticut, wrote to Jefferson with the concern that, quote, what religious privileges we enjoy, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights, which is, quote, inconsistent with the rights of free men. The concern the association had was that if they currently could practice religion based only on the allowance of the state, then at any time that allowance could be removed. Jefferson wrote him back, assuring him that the Constitution would, quote, restore to man all his natural rights. He then went on to explain the First Amendment, stating that what we today know as the Establishment Clause has in actuality built a, quote, wall of separation of church and state. And that, my friends, is where the phrase originated. The actual meaning of the phrase has been twisted to the exact opposite of what Jefferson meant. The original meaning was that the state would stay out of the business of religion. Today, we've twisted it to mean that religion must stay out of the state. If we truly wanted to use the Establishment Clause as intended, then the Supreme Court, the federal government, the state government, the school board, the school administration, the Kens and the Karens, would have no right to step in and tell any teacher that he or she couldn't pray on school grounds. That said, I still don't believe that Christians or any religions forcing their beliefs on others is a good idea. It's not going to win anyone over. Just recently, there was a short video of an airplane flight that came out where it appears a group of, I don't know, maybe teens or young adults decided that they would hold a worship music sing-along mid-flight. Although I personally would have likely enjoyed that, the reality is that by doing that, they did not advance the kingdom on the plane or anywhere this video has been watched. And more likely than not, they've done more harm than good by shoving it in the faces of people that were captive and not interested. This is why we don't tell people we're going to the game, pick them up and say, kidding, we're going to church. You're not doing any good. And maybe I'm wrong on this, but even Jesus told his disciples that if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. He didn't say to lock them in the house and just keep hammering away at them until they submit. Coming back to the Slate article, the authors have resigned themselves to what they consider to be the inevitable victory by Kennedy. They said that there were already four justices that signaled their belief that the school district violated Kennedy's rights. And since then, Amy Coney Barrett has been added to the court. Now, to me, I don't see any ruling as assured. Uh, I'm not impressed by most of the Republican-appointed justices. But Slate went on to lament that the Supreme Court has made other rulings, quote, insisting that the separation of church and state is actually unconstitutional. Well, I mean, again, you know, Google search, or preferably DuckDuckGo search. And I wouldn't say it's unconstitutional. I'd say it's non-constitutional. It just doesn't exist. They finish up with, of course, more drama, as that's really all they have, just over-sensationalized, angry emotion. It's again a masterfully written article of pure, uncut, 100% hogwash. They state fanciful arguments, such as, the Supreme Court doesn't care about the kids. 
kids are going to be pressured against their will. It's simply a matter of neurobiological science. Kennedy's prayer circle created favored insiders, i.e. the Christians. They say, quote, it is astonishing to contemplate that at the precise moment in which American parents are demanding access to the books their children are reading and video surveillance of public school educators, the rights of those parents who don't believe that public schools should privilege certain majoritarian religious viewpoints are poised to be eradicated at the Supreme Court. I don't know. That sounds violent to me. I'm not sure what they said. Anyway, and they sum up the article with, quote, it has everything to do with political power and the way in which courts and Congress can wield it to refashion coerced Christian conformity into religious liberty. Yeah, so there you have it. The reality is that the freedom to believe whatever you so choose and to practice your religion freely as long as it doesn't harm anyone. I mean, like truly harm someone, you know, not getting your little feelers hurt because you're a snowflake. That doesn't count. It's a right that we don't need government to give us. But government feels that it's their right to allow us or not to exercise this right. Hmm. Nobody should have to leave their beliefs at the door when they go to their job, whether in the private or public sector. At the same time, at least in Christianity, we're told to work as if we're working for God. If we're running around saying, it's our right to hold five Bible studies per day, and now I need to go pray for an hour, etc., 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 what kind of witness are we being to those that are unsaved, possibly even hostile to Christianity? If we're spending half the day witnessing to our coworkers, are we really working for our employer, earning our wages as if we were doing it for God? Now, I know that many pastors and Bible teachers will tell us, your workplace is your mission field. And, and yes, in concept, that's right. But you're not paid to be a full-time missionary. You're being paid to perform your duties as outlined in your job description. It's literally a negative witness to show your unbelieving coworkers that you're willing to steal time from your employer to tell them how stealing is a sin. So next time you hear a sermon like that, and you will... No need to feel guilty that you're not passing tracks out every morning, you know, to all your coworkers. Just be wise in how you handle your workplace. Don't be obnoxious. Show how you're different by your work ethic, by your attitude. And if the opportunity presents itself, be always ready. It's not our job to shovel people into heaven. The Holy Spirit can handle that part. Right? He's got it. We're to be ready to tell of the hope we have and were to be displays of the peace and the joy we have by being God's children. Also understand that if we, meaning Christians, want to have the right for this coach to pray at midfield after a game, we also need to allow Muslims to do the same, and any religion, as the First Amendment does not specify only Christianity. It specifies religion. If this ruling allows teachers to discuss their religious beliefs in a reasonable manner, in a reasonable context, in classroom settings, that means it could be any religion. They're already preaching the religion of evolution and genderism, although those aren't considered religions. Uh, but if this door is opened, it would allow Christians and all other faith traditions the same freedom to speak. My fellow Christians, keep in mind that as much as we may not like it, we don't have exclusive rights to the First Amendment. That's actually not a bad thing, as I personally don't believe we should indoctrinate kids with our belief system anyway. I believe we should teach about a wide swath of beliefs and show how Christianity is different. 
not telling kids, you must believe this, rather showing kids, here's why not believing this would just be ridiculous and help them understand why Christianity is the only belief system that makes sense and the only one that offers assurance, true hope, everlasting joy. So don't be hypocritical if a change to the interpretation of the Establishment Clause were to take place. Remember, we live in a representative republic, not a theocracy. We elect a president, not a head religious figure. In a secular society, we have to be willing to take the good with the bad. That just means that we should be better at explaining the good and showing the obvious flaws in the bad. So you can easily see from this very angry article how an individual that only reads, watches, or listens to one side of the argument could become angry, sad, hostile. Let me urge you to at least know what the other side is saying. You don't need to spend a lot of time researching their opinions and stances, but just be informed. Don't be a single source repository of information. The world, as displayed by the microcosm of this article, is very hostile toward Christians, which is actually nonsensical, since when you ask what Christians have done wrong, they generally have to go all the way back to the Crusades, or they mention some fringe group like the Westboro Baptist, which, one, we also haven't really heard from in quite a while, and two, they're not Christians. Overall, the last six of the Ten Commandments should be held up by every flavor of religious or non-religious people. Those are literally just morals, a code of conduct. And are Christians really threatening anyone or anything? Will we eschew all science if we were all Christians? No, I mean, in fact, Christians are the reason many fields of study started. We'd just hopefully be more honest brokers of information while looking at all possibilities for how things work, or how things happened. There's only one reason why they hate us, and it's because they hated God first. The sinful man sees nothing but foolishness when he looks at Christianity, so to him, it's a threat to his kingdom and the rules he's set up. But what the sinful man doesn't understand is that they're the actual slaves. They will forever be slaves to sin, slaves to death, and slaves to hell. Christians, on the other hand, are slaves to Christ that have been transformed into brothers and co-heirs with Christ. The Christian is truly free, regardless of the twisted perception of freedom the lost world may have. So Slate is not an honest broker. They have one purpose, enrage people using whatever means are necessary so that they can get clicks. Sadly, that describes most media outlets these days, and most of them are not only not Christian, they are hostile towards Christ. They hate him, and by extension, they hate us. Let me encourage you to keep the faith, keep your joy, And not only get in your Bible and understand your enemy from a spiritual standpoint, but get into enough media and think critically while consuming so you can understand how the enemy is confusing the minds and enslaving image bearers of God. This will help you know the worldview that's been twisted in the minds of others. And when presented with the opportunity to speak with them, maybe you can help clear things up. You know how when your car's check engine light comes on, you go to the eye doctor to diagnose your car problem? Or how you find the best plumber to figure out why your cat isn't acting right? Or how when you were in high school, you found the biggest nerd in the school to help you with dating advice? And and if you were the biggest nerd, I apologize for dredging up those memories. And so at this point, you may be asking yourself, is he drunk? Has he had a stroke? Well, I don't drink. And uh, so far, 
<laughs> Despite my personal life and uh, nutrition choices, I've skirted around the whole stroke thing for now. No, I'm just trying to give examples of how smart we are as a society, allowing these celebrity talking heads that claim, implicitly or otherwise, to have a special knowledge in area of expertise, a certain je ne sais quoi, and I do not know what that means, but it sounds good, to tell us what we should think about a topic. Look at the infinity number of talk shows that are in existence right now. And these things are so popular for some reason. I, I don't know. Personally, I can't stand them. But obviously, a, a lot of people love them or they, they wouldn't be on. In my opinion, one of the worst shows, I think, in the history of humanity. And I only say that because the hosts are just, just awful, is The View. Now, let me say this. If I've somehow offended you by making this statement, I'm right, you're wrong. From the Blaze.com headline, Joy Bear says that she doesn't believe homosexuality is mentioned in the Bible. That's how much I know about the Bible. Yes, that literally shows how much she does know about the Bible. That might be the first thing that she's been correct about on this show in the 25 years it's been on the air. So Joy, who is probably the most misnamed person ever, is the only remaining original host on the show. She's now 80 years old, allegedly a comedian, although, okay, and generally a bit part actress in a variety of shows and movies. She left the show in 2013 because it was apparently the right time, and apparently it was not the right time as she kept guest co-hosting and then she returned to enlighten us with her wisdom full-time again all the way later in 2015, and hasn't looked back since. Now, if you watch The View, I simply have to ask, why? Or, well, wait, maybe how? I, one of those. I've seen bits and pieces, and it looks, oh, just unbearable. Just a, a bunch of old washed-up has-beens clucking away about stuff they don't understand, but being angry lefties, they're going to spout off about what they think they've heard about a subject anyway. <laughs> just, just terrible. So the backstory to this article is that Mike Pence was asked during a panel after a speech he had given what his response would be if he found out one of his kids was gay. Now, I'm not a huge Pence fan, although from what I've heard him say, I generally agree with his stance on the family and Christian principles. I don't think a future in politics is his thing. And without getting into it, because it's not the point... I think he's maybe too nice of a guy to be in politics. I don't know. Anyway, his answer to the question, it was, again, nice, but weak, in my opinion. He said that he'd look his child in the eye and tell him he loved him, which, good start, right? And then he kind of went into politician mode. Quote, I believe marriage was ordained by God and instituted in the law, but we live in a pluralistic society, and the way we go forward and the way we come together as a country... United, I believe, is when we respect your right to believe and my right to believe what we believe. Now, if that's what he's going to tell his son, that's really a pretty impersonal, weak answer in my opinion. I think he quickly moved from a personal example to politician speak. And admittedly, this is a landmine of a question to answer in that forum. A wrong step in your days in politics are over. But the sentiment he expressed was definitely a very weak stance from a Christian perspective. Although I believe that to some degree a country does need to stand together on some things, I don't believe that we need to unite above all else, and I don't believe we should make a blanket statement to just respect what everyone believes. If you're pro-rape and murder, 
I have a hard time uniting with you. If you're pro-abortion, I have no respect for that belief and cannot unite with you on that. If you're pro-transgender children, we will never be at unity. Now, if my kid decided she was gay, I would definitely love her. She would know that I will never stop being her father. But I would neither support nor respect her choice. And she'd be very clear about my stance and how there would be a rift in a number of ways because of this. I'd also be very clear about what we both know to be true, even if she wants to pretend that it's not. As one of the guest co-hosts on this episode of The View, who happened to be one of Pence's former aides, said, she believes his remarks showed that he was evolving in some of his personal beliefs. And from a Christian standpoint, <laughs> that don't sound so good. Julia Hart, another host of the show, said that her daughter is in a partnership with a woman and she, quote, would never have been able to live her life in the way she saw fit if she'd stay in her former religion as a Haredi Jew. She went on to say, quote, to me, having the right to choose who you want to be and not made to feel shame is what democracy is. Who decided that a traditional marriage is a man and a woman? Who came up with this plan? Everything that exists in nature, right? People say it's unnatural. Isn't everything that exists in nature natural? And before you get the aspirin down for your pounding headache from that brain buster, Joy chimes in, quote, is homosexuality even mentioned in the Bible? I don't think it is. <laughs> now, thankfully, the other host chimed in and quietly said that it is, to which she cackled, ah, that's how much I know about the Bible. And that should be surprising, as she was raised Catholic. On the other hand, should we be surprised about anything these days? My question is, how can there be such biblical ignorance in the United States? I mean, we have a former Catholic and a Jew, and I'm not sure if she's practicing or not, and they apparently don't know some basic points in the biblical text. Well, let's back up and peel this onion away one layer at a time. Starting with Julia Hart's comments, I'll be honest, this, <laughs> this hurt my brain. I know nothing about Haredi Judaism, but from her own comments, one could infer they're apparently aligned with what I would consider to be standard, typical Judaism, at least to some degree. One would think that they at least have what the Protestants consider to be the Old Testament, or they would have at least the Torah defined as the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. Well, Julia basically asked three questions. One, isn't it natural to do what exists in nature? Two, who decided that marriage is a man and a woman? And three, isn't democracy the right to be who you want to be without shame? So let's try to briefly take these one at a time. So who decided that marriage is a man and a woman? Well, the short answer, God. In the beginning, God made man, then to provide a helper or a partner for the man, God created woman. Moses, who wrote Genesis, then said, right after he wrote about the creation of woman, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But that's in the Old Testament, right? Clearly that doesn't apply anymore, except that Paul in Ephesians, when writing about marriage and the parallels between it and the relationship between Christ and his church, uses gendered language, you know, like a hater, that clearly shows marriage is male and female. And he reiterates, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
But Dan, you may say, none of those are the words of Jesus. If Jesus didn't say it, it really doesn't matter as much. And yes, that's actually a thing. Those people are termed red-letter Christians as they pretty much discount everything that's not in red, denoting the words of Jesus that may be in the Bible. So we can skitter on over to the book of Matthew when Jesus was asked about divorce by the Pharisees, of course trying again to catch him in blasphemy, and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So, Although this isn't always the case, nor does it need to be the case to be authoritative, the answer to who decided? Well, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. And it's in the red letters. God. God decided this. And there was a time that this statement would have actually carried some weight. I'm afraid that it's just not as powerful of a declaration as it once was. The next question. Isn't it natural to do what exists in nature... That one's a bit more complex, but let's further break it down some. The premise of this question is rooted in the evolutionary theory. I'm not going to go into that. You can check out some of my past episodes for deeper dives into the theory of evolution. But what she's basically asking is, if animals can either be straight or gay, and humans are just further evolved animals, why wouldn't it just be natural for us to be either straight or gay? So, it's a poor premise. I mean, evolution is a stupid theory, but let's just walk a little way down that road. Let's say that we are evolved animals. Then wouldn't it be natural to just do what they do? If that's the case, well, animals kill other animals for fun, or to protect, or for food. I guess we kind of do those things. To animals, usually, only, hopefully, um, sometimes humans... Animals impregnate as many other animals as they can, generally speaking, without worrying about the consequences. Well, okay, okay, humans do that too. This seems to be backfiring on me. Um, let's see, animals lick their own butts. Ah, I think we can safely say that most humans don't do this, right? Okay, uh, so although we may act like animals, the real question is, do animals do what they do based on a conscious, reasoned, educated thought process, or do they do things because um, they're animals? Further, do animals weigh their choices based on moral, ethical, or other criteria before acting? I think that, uh, well, except for the, the PETA people, and I think we can all agree that they're crazy, people will generally say that animals do what they do because they're simply animals. I mean, think about it. If a male dog humps another male dog, there are some that will try to claim that that right there, that's a gay dog. But if your dog humps on a leg, people will not claim that he's a dog with a leg fetish. If the dog jumps up on a child and starts humping on the child, the dog will not be hauled off to jail as a pedophile. Why? Because animals don't have a conscience like humans do and don't have an ability to make moral decisions like humans do. We may act like animals, but that doesn't mean we are animals. And society, and in many cases rule of law, will show how acting like an animal is illegal, perverted, or debased. Furthermore, Although the evolutionists can claim that based on DNA evidence, homologous structures, physical appearance, and on and on, that humans are evolved from what, chimps, whatever, ask them how the conscience evolved. Ask them how morals evolved. Ask how the basic sense of right and wrong evolved. 
They can't answer that. They'll generally point to something like, well, society decided. But based on that, how can we trust that society got it right? Hey, maybe my morals, which are opposite to societies, are actually the right ones. So to answer her question, nature is natural. Nature follows the laws of nature, written by a lawgiver, but humans are unique. Just because something physically exists in nature doesn't mean it's natural or morally right for humans to do. Unfortunately, regarding humans, our nature is one of sin, depravity, wretchedness, ultimately death, and an eternity in hell. Thankfully, and for no other reason than to glorify himself, God has provided a way to battle that nature, to be saved from the consequences of that nature, and eventually be relieved of the burden of that nature. Her final question was also phrased poorly. Basically, it was, isn't democracy where you can do whatever you want and not feel shame? Well, okay, so first of all, no, democracy is ruled by the people, and until very, very recently, at least in the United States, if we had a pure democratic system, many of the laws and rights that codify the ability to participate in various amoral activities would have never been put in place. Remember, even California just a handful of years ago voted down the right of homosexual marriage twice until the representatives of those same voters decided they knew better and codified that right anyway. What she was asking about was freedom. And in the broadest definition, freedom is the right to do what you want. But as we know, freedom based on that definition doesn't actually exist. We can't just murder people or rape people, or as Nancy Pelosi said a few years back, we can't just yell wolf in a crowded theater, which I'm not sure why you cry wolf in there or how many theaters have had wolves somehow get in the theater, but that's something that she's told us we can't do. So human freedom does have some boundaries on it. Now, shame is a different subject, though. The idea of shame, again, can't be explained through evolutionary means. There must be a standard, a moral standard, that when broken produces feelings of guilt and shame. There is one way on this earth to remove the concern of feeling shame and that's to ignore your conscience, or more accurately, to ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Whether we're saved or not, and however the Holy Spirit, the law that's written on our hearts, our own thought processes, and or societal norms work in our decision-making, if we ignore the signals of shame long enough, eventually they'll disappear. Just FYI, that's a bad thing. Saved or not, that's a bad thing. I don't think the hosts of The View want to live in a world that consists of freedom to do what you want without shame. Moving into the epitome of her namesake, Bear, I mean Joy, her question about homosexuality being in the Bible, I mean, we don't need to do a lot of legwork here as there are many, many resources that spell this out better than can be done here in this limited format, but a few bullet points to think of. As part of the laws given to Moses, written in Leviticus, the Bible says, quote, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. But of course, that's in the Old Testament. And as we know, not all of the Levitical laws are still in play today. Yeah, but in Romans, we read that because mankind decided to ignore God, quote, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And again in 1 Corinthians, quote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, anywhere in the New Testament where the Greek word pornea is used, all forms of sexual deviance are contained in that word, including homosexuality. Of course, as I've mentioned, there are the red-letter so-called Christians that would argue that if Jesus didn't say it, it doesn't apply. Well, the problem is that Jesus didn't say a lot of stuff about a lot of topics. That's not a good argument, as nowhere we're told that the only authoritative parts of the Bible are the words of Jesus. Nor are we to believe that maybe it was Paul that was, you know, just a homophobe, and Jesus was actually fine with homosexuality, because Jesus selected Paul as an apostle, so this would really clearly call into question the omniscience and thus the godliness of Jesus, and since Jesus is God, eh, you kind of see the conundrum that we're getting ourselves into. Neither can we say that maybe Paul's writings shouldn't be included because he clearly wasn't speaking truth. Maybe Jesus didn't select him. It was demonic or a ruse, in which case we then have to remove the writings of all the apostles, since Paul was affirmed and confirmed by them multiple times. And if we removed all the other writings, then how can we trust the writers of the Gospels, which are the only locations that contain those alleged words of Jesus? So that eliminates the New Testament entirely, which leaves us with the Old Testament and the Levitical laws mandating homosexuals are stoned to death. Huh. Well, rather than dropping back and punting to the Old Testament, and mercifully and thankfully the passage I just cited in 1 Corinthians, which was taken from the first letter to the church at Corinth, goes on after the long list of those that will not inherit the kingdom of God to say, quote, And such were some of you. Were. That's important. That's past tense. Paul goes on to say, quote, But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Even those that don't know what they're doing is sinful, or claim to not know, or do know but don't care. A washing, a regeneration, a new birth is possible. Forgiveness for sin, relief from guilt and shame, salvation from an eternity experiencing the pouring out of the wrath of God in hell is possible. Unfortunately for Joy, based on her age, her time is running out to take this seriously. For the daughter with her homosexual partner, they're both walking down a dark path of depravity that will ultimately end with their destruction if they don't turn. We need to be in prayer that God will have mercy on even these, that he will open their eyes, regenerate their hearts, and grant them the faith to come to him with repentance and belief. And we, me included, we all fall into one or more of the categories of people that Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians. Even as saved individuals, we still battle that sin nature. Keep fighting. Keep learning, studying, reading the Bible. Keep praying. Do not ignore your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. Pray for strength, for wisdom, and for the means of escape from temptation to be made clear in your time of need. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.